0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: You know, media dominates our lives in ways unimaginable even 50 years ago. We can be contacted passively and actively across a wide range of devices and platforms and have more information available to us, often at a moment's notice, than most of the wealthiest and prominent people in times past. Today, Charles and I are going to discuss some collateral damage of such access to information, much of which is often unfiltered. Charles, do you think we have become reduced to a people who either accept or reject, identify or shun labels that others have placed on us or we have even placed on ourselves?
0: I think the answer to that question is somewhat multifaceted because in one sense, it's hard for us to completely avoid labels, however accurate or inaccurate they may be. For example, if someone refers to the Christian movement or Christian reconstruction or Calvinism or whatever it may be, they've created a label or a term and they're using a label label or a term that obviously can mean one thing to one person and another to another. So even if it's for no other reason than to address what we understand a particular term to mean, We do have to walk in that world. I think the issue that we have to deal with most often, though, as you alluded, is how the media is responsible for creating some of these things, if not most of them in in our time. And media does that for a variety of reasons. And we're talking about, of course, now uh, the web, the Internet, uh, social media. In a previous generation, it was – television, radio. Newspapers. New, yes. News, uh, heaven forbid I forget the, the blessed newspapers. Um, yes. But especially modern media, they create these things for a number of reasons. I mean, I, and, and even older media like TV, right, most people may be familiar with the term soundbite. Uh, soundbite or its visual equivalent is easier to work with in a compressed 30-minute time period, which evening news used to be. And so you wind up not getting the full story about this issue or that issue or this group or that group of people. And uh, then there's also the issue of creating labels and terms to reduce people we don't like or movements that we have problems with in a way that is uh, unflattering to them. We all do that to some extent, regardless. On the other hand, if we follow God's divine word, it gives us all absolute truth, and if we just simply go with what it teaches us about various and all topics, then I think we are, well, I know we are in the best place.
1: So when we think of these labels, I like to think of them as thought-terminating words or phrases. If I use the phrase, then I have now said everything you need to know about this person or movement, and I'm thinking yesterday, I was talking to a person who, in Most situations, as a believer, would agree with me on that we must toe the line. And one of the first things he said is, by the way, I want you to know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And I stopped him and I said, what is an (laughs) anti-vaxxer? Right? And I was like, well, let's go back. If we had asked George Washington, or let's go even further back to the Apostle Paul and ask them, are you an anti-vaxxer? They would look at us like, what are you talking about, right? So oftentimes, whoever puts the pro prefix or the anti prefix in front of something has sort of framed the discussion so that now instead of having a discussion, we're having a defense. We, we have to either say, no, 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 please don't think of me that way. I hadn't thought of this man one way or the other. Matter of fact, if we got into a discussion of vaccination, I'm sure we would have found nuances in areas where we agreed or areas where we disagreed. But I find that when we start defending ourselves against a label as opposed to actually talking issues, we end up actually contributing to the divisive nature of society, the church, theological circles, even family members that we're playing into this dividing a house against itself.
0: Yeah, in some ways it's like the uh, uh, time honored trick l- legal question, have you stopped beating your wife, you know? Um if if I'm being forced to defend or contradict a label without first having a full understanding of what it's supposed to mean or what it really means, that I'm already at a disadvantage. And and let's let's put some put some uh, flesh on the bone so to speak. You know, if uh someone says to me, are you a calvinist? Well, I understand that term to mean one thing, but I I'm tempted to always ask, well, it depends on what you mean by that because you know, there's a certain segment of Christian Christian uh, churches and Christian people who on the other side of the word Calvinism, they put the, uh, on the the equal sign, they put the term uh, not interested in people getting saved or not interested in evangelism. You know, that's just one example that uh, maybe resonates with some of our folks. Now, that's certainly not ha- how I understand Calvin. Or for other people, even within the broadly reformed camp, which I would suspect that many of our listeners, if not most are, the word Calvinism means the five points of Calvinism and nothing more. Or if there is anything more, a lot of people don't even know what that would be. So I think this is where the terminology and the labels become problematic, since if we're all operating from an understanding of what these terms are, uh, it, it could be okay to have that discussion and to get into defense or uh, apologetic for it. But but the problem is when the media or people outside uh, begin to define these things, like your friend saying, "Well, I, I want you to know, I'm not an anti-vaxer." Well, the the idea of what a vaxer or anti vaxxer is has been largely shaped by the media. I, I was listening to on this topic. I don't want to get off on it, but it, you brought it up, and I think it's relevant here. I was listening to a one of our local radio talk shows. Uh, this woman has a vast audience here in this part of the country and uh the several states surrounding where I live in South Carolina. It's a morning talk show, and she's very conservative. She's, I wouldn't say overtly Christian, but generally Christian. And she was talking about this issue and about vaccinations. And she said, you know, prior to just a few months ago, our corporate policy for the company that carries my talk show, I was not able to say what I really thought. But now that that's been put aside, I can tell you, don't do this, (laughs) you know. So here's an example of somebody whose uh, ideas, or whether she accepted it or not, or her audience, it was being shaped by somebody outside um, the issue who had a particular agenda to legislate.
1: And I'm thinking that there's so many terms that depending on when they were used, the tone of voice they were used with, like homeschooler. When I started homeschooling, you were kind of weird if you were a homeschooler. Now, people would, oh, I so respect what you did. I wish I had done that. So without doing your homework, without relying on, I don't really have to research this. I don't have to understand this side or that side. I'm just going to come to a conclusion because somebody I like to listen to use the term. Well, we've had terms like science denier, anti-choice, anarchist. Let's remember, even the term Christian was originally used as a slur by people who didn't embrace Christ.
0: Yeah, and I suppose uh, it it varies from one worldview or religion to another, and and maybe faith movements or religions that have been around much longer with a long history of creedal statements and definitions it's it's a little less of an issue but you know you can think of some of the more recent religions i i am not i'm going to avoid names and titles here but there was a prominent movie star and tv personality who re- recently passed away she was a part of a particular religious cult and I don't think that there would be any doubt in anybody's mind, either people in it or outside of it, when I said so-and-so was a member of this particular, quote, church, there's no doubt what that stands for and what it means. But if I said so-and-so was a Christian, heaven only knows what people would think that meant, you know, Right. Uh, be- because that, that term has come to mean so many different things to so many different people.
1: Right. And that's where I think it's laziness on the part of most people. You know, given the opportunity back when I was in school, you could either read the novel or if you didn't really like to read the novel, you could go get the cheat sheet or the cliff notes, tell you the main things so that you could write a passable essay or you could pass the true or false or the fill in the blanks or the multiple choice part of the test. And I wonder if it's our, lack of appetite for really being willing to come to our own conclusions, as opposed to, I'm going to take the safe road, kind of put my finger up and see which way the wind is blowing. And then I'll either be for or against this. I'll identify with this or not. And it leaves a very shallow uh, populace from my point of view, because you're allowing other people to make conclusions for you.
0: I think one example that I can give of that, and I think you're absolutely right, it is a lack of initiative, maybe academic or intellectual or philosophical or theological laziness on the part of some. I remember when I was still in seminary, I was in a class with students who are enrolled in the same seminary who are all uh, seeking ordination in a particular denomination that I was affiliated with at the time. And uh, I don't even remember how the subject came up, but one of the students in the class said, "Well, you know, that's that's like those Christian Reconstructionists. You know, those are the people." And he, and he was he was in earnest. He was serious. He said, "Those are the people. You know that if you pull the uh, the the ox out of the ditch on Sunday, they're going to execute you." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just laughable that he obviously knew nothing about what anything RJ Rushdoony wrote in particular or anyone else you can name who's been associated with Christian reconstruction but that's the the uh, parody uh, the false image that it's easier for somebody like that to believe and if you ask that person I didn't bother to ask him but you know uh, have you ever read any of these writings or any of these authors he would probably say absolutely not i and on the flip side of that i'll give you another example when i went through seminary I was taught to think, for good reasons, that the theological writings of the German-speaking Swiss uh, theologian Karl Barth uh, were highly problematic. They were shot through with existentialism and dialecticalism and things such as that, and uh, he he pioneered something called neo-orthodoxy. Now, most people, seminary students or whoever, they don't take a lot of time to actually read what Karl Barth wrote. Uh, They just know that uh, Dr. Van Til, Gordon Clark, whoever else, they didn't like Karl Barth that much, so therefore I won't like him, and I know he's bad. So I remember having a discussion sometime after I got out of seminary with a couple of clergy people who were members of a mainline Protestant denomination, and I mentioned this idea about Barth being a, quote, liberal, and they about spit their coffee out, (laughs) (laughs) Because these particular clergy people were extremely, truly liberal. But you see, in their world, Karl Barth was a conservative, and they could not believe that anybody would call him liberal. And I think that if people put, and I'm staying with this example, his teachings in context, you could see that in the larger framework of European Protestant theology, what he was saying was, on one level, very conservative. I mean, it was not orthodox, in spite of it being called neo-orthodoxy. And it's highly problematic. He did not affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. So I want to say all the right things. I I reject Barth's teaching. But it pays to have an accurate and clear understanding of what something is, what what a person has taught, and, and what a movement is in order for us to properly speak it and address it. We have an obligation, I think, as believers, as Christians, to act and speak with integrity and honesty and in a way that shows that we are informed about what we're talking about.
1: And that's one of the reasons I always was sort of in awe of the 15 years I got a chance to interact with Dr. Rush Dooney. To say that his house was filled with books is an understatement. Um, my recollection is when it came time to eat, his wife would have to decidedly implore him to get the books off the table so she could set it. But one of the things he did is he read a lot, and he read people that he didn't agree with, and he would sometimes extensively quote people he didn't agree with, pointing out that he did agree with this person in this particular area, but in general, he thought he was off the mark, similar to what you just pointed out with the example you gave. Now, some people would say, well, we can't all be scholars. Well, then, maybe we should stop trying to be experts (laughs) if we're not willing to do the research and examine it because then what happens is we end up polarizing situations. And nothing in the process of polarization actually resolves differences. That instead of building bridges so I can see what you're saying and you can see what I'm saying, and maybe there's a chance one of us will change our point of view We're either blowing up the potential bridge or we're making sure that the bridge never gets finished.
0: One of the things that I think uh, made Dr. Rushduni something, um, what's the word I'm looking for, pariah, Uh, there were academic people who, uh, some academic people who did not like him. And I, I, I liken this to a phrase that he himself often used. He was resented by lesser men. And what you just said was one example of that. You know, somebody who's got a Ph.D. from some seminary or, or graduate school, regardless of what it is or where it's from, God bless them. They worked hard. They got their degree. and they. F- but you see, people don't understand. People who get these high academic and advanced degrees, they are focused generally on one specific area. That's just the way it, it works in academia. Dr. rustuni had legitimate uh, bachelor's and master's degrees from legitimate, quote, accredited institutions. And I think he may have been given an honorary doctorate. But you see, that's one of the outstanding and amazing things about his work. And one reason I constantly refer to him is that, is that the breadth of his reading and knowledge was far greater than some of the brightest so-called PhD types out there. And that's why he often could, I mean, without putting anything negative behind it or uh, intending to do, he he could confound many of his people he was dialoguing with, I'll put it that way, who were not so well-read. And and anyone who wants an example of that, you you just pick up one of his more uh, lengthier books. You don't even have to be that lengthy. Uh, Christianity and the, the State, uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law, any of these books. And you can see the, the copious footnotes of volumes. Some of them are like where did he get this from? And you look it up. <laughs> you know, he's he's reading like you said constantly and reading material from highly academic sources that somebody with a narrow focus in in academia has has never thought about.
1: What's more, he didn't spend his time defending himself. He spent his time helping people understand the scripture better. And I think a term now, a movement now that's getting thrown around when, when people don't understand what a particular person means by it, the term Christian nationalist. So what is a Christian nationalist? Well, it depends on who you speak with. If somebody thinks it's a good thing, then you're going to hear a lot of positive stuff. If somebody thinks it's a bad thing, you're going to hear negative stuff. So what did I decide to do? I decided to research it myself. And once you understand that you can listen to someone, you can read someone, and it's okay to agree with them on some things, but you don't have to agree with them on all things. But the process should be, let's relate it back to the thing, the word of God, which isn't going to change. So then we get a chance to say, how biblical is this person being? Can this person's perspective be rooted in scripture? And that only comes if you are willing to look at the scripture as God's directive to men, how we're to live, how we're to obey him, how we are to fulfill the Great Commission people who want to get off into discussing other things, or this is just like radical Islam, or this is whatever, they're banking on the fact that their listeners won't do their homework. And to me, anybody who will do that, who will just go along with, I don't want to be identified with that person because he's got some bad reputation attached to them, are basically seeding important areas of societal influence to the enemy because they're not unwilling to live by their doctrines they don't have to worry about slander they don't have to worry about imputing somebody's motives when it's not there because they're not governed by the commandments of god as we are
0: one of the things that people should understand is that when we approach any of these topics i think i'm speaking for both of us We want to do so from the standpoint of the absolute authority of God's divine word and to repeat it again, the fact that it speaks with authority concerning everything about which it speaks, and it speaks about everything, including nations, including families, including, well, everything, right? Right. So when we come to this type of topic, that's the framework that we're going to move from. I mean, you have to have a starting point. You have to have a framework. And as I understand scripture, I think, again, speaking, I think, for you as well, we understand scripture to say there are only two possible starting points, the word of God or the word of man, or that is humanism. And so the issue of nationalism or whatever else it may be, that has to be understood and analyzed from the standpoint of the absolute authority of God's divine word. And we find that, that particular topic uh, is not spelled out as clearly perhaps as the news media has gone with this particular one and even some Christian groups as well. I think my understanding of the context of this without going too far into it is that in recent presidential campaigns there's been this business about American greatness, American exceptionalism, and, and these sorts of things. And some of this can, I think, can be traced. Well, there are different places it can be traced back. But in modern times, especially after nine eleven. Everybody was, you know, these colors don't run, let's wave the flag, uh, you know, we're we're tough, we're Americans, and we're going to defeat the enemy and all that. That's fine with defeating the enemy, but let's realize who the enemies truly and really are. And when God brings his sanctions and judgments in history against a nation or people, uh, the response is not to be arrogance and pride, but submission to his will and seeking forgiveness uh, and restoration. And so I think there's an element to this that this particular topic that has to be understood from that standpoint but then i think that our readers excuse me our our listeners would do well to take up an essay that dr rastuni wrote it was originally published i think in his book the politics of guilt and pity uh, i believe there is an audio lecture of it it's called the united nations a religious dream and if you're interested in this topic of so-called christian nationalism I would urge people to read that. He doesn't. That term is not mentioned anywhere in that lengthy essay, but I think that you can read this and see how the issues that are swirling around this topic, and, and especially for those Christians who are concerned about this. This matter, at least in my mind, has been addressed and settled a long time ago. God's plan and God's purpose is that the world belongs to him, and history is moving in a direction to where, uh, under the kingship and authority of Christ, the kingdoms of this world are Christ's kingdoms, and so the issue then of national boundaries and these sorts of things, I I can do no better than rely on what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.11, where he, and and he also gets into this, I think, in Galatians chapter 3, but in the Colossians 3.11 uh, edition of it, he refers to people being in Christ as neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. That, I think, is the most important thing. Now, does that mean that there's no room for linguistic language group or cultural distinctions? I don't think so. I mean, in sticking with Dr. Rush Dooney, uh, people who know about his life and ministry, he spent the first part of it uh, working with Native Americans in northern Nevada. Uh, He himself came from a distinct uh, ethnic and cultural group, the Armenian people. And I don't ever recall him reading or or reading anything that he wrote saying that none of these things should be. But the key thing is, regardless of what your nation is, who is the divine authority? What is the voice of authority for your family, your church, and your nation?
1: And I believe you're right that if we allow everything to become political – as opposed to looking at it from a religious perspective. So I've been challenged by people who've known me for years. Oh, I see. You think a woman shouldn't have a right to what happens to her own body. Well, I could defend, no, no, no. I think a woman has a right. Or I can answer and say, the word of God says, thou shalt not kill And when a woman is pregnant and she ends her pregnancy, she is terminating life and she is in violation of that commandment. Instead of defending or trying to explain away a label, let's talk about what we're talking about. We're not talking about a woman's right to choose whether she gets her nails done or whether she dyes her hair or not, which you might have very strong opinions on one way or another, we're talking about murder. And I think if we stop bypassing the core of what we believe. So let's go back to this Christian nationalism. Oh, you think that the laws of every nation should be in line with scripture? Well, if you answer yes, that means something. If you answer no, that means something. And how are we going to decide who's got the right perspective? Well, hey, let's go to the scripture. Jesus' parting words were, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, teaching them what I told you. Now, it might seem like, whoa, we're a long way away from that ever happening. But does that mean we shouldn't posit that it should happen? Or do we have to play the game of being acceptable to those people who don't love Christ, don't want to submit to Christ, and want to control other people?
0: I believe it was Dr. Rastuni who wrote somewhere, forgive me for not remembering the reference, but the promotion of the idea of tolerance is usually almost always just the uh, opening of the door for a new type of intolerance. And that's another way of saying, okay, if, if, if you want to say that all nations should be Christian, well, what's the alternative to that? Either no nation should be Christian, or some can choose to be whatever they want. But ultimately, that is not a static situation. Whether you're talking about a family or in a community or a nation, you know, you can expand it outward. There is a continual competition for dominance and authority of one, one worldview or another. This is inevitable. It's inescapable. I was just watching an interview before we, uh, we started of a well-known Christian conservative writer and uh, video blogger. He had recently been to a United Nations climate summit, and he was reporting on the fact that part of that summit was a religious ceremony in which there were religious representatives of, of all the major world religions, uh, including shamans from South America and pagan religions and all this sort of thing. And what this represents is not simply just these different religions all getting together. Yeah, we've got to be really concerned about the climate. It actually represents a continual promotion of a different religion. Because when you look at the distinctives, whether it's Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, wh- whatever it may be, they have their distinctive doctrinal or theological statements but in this kind of situation ultimately they all are giving accession to the idea of a total oneness of all things and that's why the the climate becomes so important for these people mother earth this this sort of thing and so it's it's a competition between what is right and what is wrong how do you define that and so you have to, again, you go back to this whole thing, you've got to have a standard by which that can be defined. And it can't be two things at once. You know, yes. I can't be talking I can't be talking to you right now and not talking to you at the same time. I'm going to be here talking to you, or I'm going to be doing something else,
1: yes. By the way, to answer the question, "Where does he address this? um, he addresses it in the introduction to the Institutes of Biblical Law. And Calcedon has taken that introduction. And put it into a booklet form entitled Faith and Obedience. And I think it's one of his major pieces of writing. And you know that I've read lots of his writing. I teach lots of his writing, but that initial introduction to institutes sort of sets the table.
0: Yes. And
1: when you, when you decide that toleration is acceptable, And you don't see where that leads. So think of all the things, Charles, we have to tolerate now. We have to tolerate somebody imposing their view of who they are in terms of their pronouns, and we're supposed to tolerate it. We're supposed to tolerate being forced to do certain things to our bodies that we may not want to do. And even if we're wrong in not wanting to do it, we have to tolerate the idea that we don't have the ability to make these decisions for ourselves. So toleration, I I think more and more people are realizing what a Trojan horse that is, because once you get people to tolerate an inch, getting them to do a foot isn't that difficult, and now you have a yard and then you have a mile. And before long, because people have thought that I have to be tolerant, they lose any liberty that they had, and if they don't know the word of God, they don't know how to get it back.
0: A generation ago or more, we weren't facing these kind of issues, and it would be absolutely unheard of that some of the things that we see being promoted now, you know, I can wake up tomorrow and declare myself a female and that sort of thing. It it just would be, you, you you would be laughed off the stage or you would be told to get out of the room because you're obviously insane so how did we get to that point it's just been a shift of worldview a shift of authority a shift of law now whether you i I prefer especially given the foundation and we're talking about christian nationalism you know these united states were established as separate independent states and at least in the original 13 colonies, the overwhelming majority of them were confessionally Christian and most of them Protestant. And so the fact that things like uh, sodomy, adultery, all of these things were codified as being contrary to law and punishable in various ways was because everyone acceded to and recognized the voice of authority of God's law word. They may have been inconsistent with it, but that was the operating assumption of these places, these governments. And if you have a majority of the people in in a nation who accede to that and agree to it, then you have an operating way that society can move forward and and operate. So now we've seen that through a concerted effort, I believe, to displace that consensus and replace it with something else. This is how we get to where we are today. This is how a a person can stand up or wake up, excuse me, the next day and say, oh, I'm going to be this sex today or that sex tomorrow when 50 years ago or less nobody would have even thought about such a thing well there's been a change in worldview and it's it it really doesn't have that much to do with ethnic or national identity but the way a particular ethnic group or national group define themselves is going to be based on what is the foundation of truth and reality of that particular group
1: And it's not so much a question of am I a citizen of France, am I a citizen of Nigeria, am I a citizen of the United States, am I a citizen of the kingdom of God? And if that becomes our focus, then we can look at the nations on which, in which we were born and say, okay, God placed me here. And there's nothing wrong with me having an allegiance to my nation so long as my nation isn't at war with God. Because if my nation is at war with God at the highest levels and I acquiesce and say, well, that's just the way it is, then I have a divided loyalty. And my reading of scripture says that we serve a jealous God. God doesn't share well. He doesn't intend to have his authority and his sovereignty shared. Now, we're familiar with the fact that those who oppose biblical views are ready to censor them or ready to promote those people who have muddied the waters and really have a much more humanistic version of Christianity than a biblical version. My problem is when people censor themselves, when people don't do the research, when people don't look at the scripture. So somebody makes an accusation, We'll go to the scripture and say, is that accusation something that's going to bring me Blessings by God, if I live that way, or cursings by God. I think we've got to get back to this idea of saying amen to God in our entire being. We may not like everything the word of God says, but the word amen says, so be it. In other words, you're in charge, you're God, I'm not. And even if I get some negative feedback because somebody calls me a bigot or a legalist or an anti-this or an anti-that, that that I know who who it is that I serve. And if I'm embarrassed by that, Charles, doesn't this fall under the category of being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ?
0: Yes, I think it does. And uh, we will reap the whirlwind from that kind of attitude on several different levels. And the most foundational and fundamental in, in keeping with what we are talking about, if you take for the example of of what justice is, you know, the Lord has said and given us in his law word, these are the standards by which you are to live. And if you violate these laws, these are the punishments that are to ensue after proper procedure has followed. Now, again, it may be something I, I'm not really crazy about the fact that if somebody has done this and they're convicted, this is what has to happen to them in terms of punishment or restitution or whatever. But the Lord has said this is justice, and this is the way criminal population is controlled in a godly society. And if you don't want to deal with that, if it's an embarrassment to you, if you want to reject it, well, certainly you can do that, and then you will deal with, for example, what we're dealing with now in a lot of communities where there is just total anarchy and godlessness. And uh, you've probably seen some of the same reports that I have, how certain businesses are reporting huge outflows of money because of theft. And I realize the news media can make some of this stuff look far worse than it is, but it is a reality. But I think getting back to something you said a moment ago concerning the kingdom, and this has to do with... The references I made to Colossians and also the book of Galatians, and which, by the way, Dr. Rastuni has an excellent commentary on the book of Galatians, which can be purchased from the Chalcedon Foundation. I think the point there is the kingdom of God, as you said, and these distinctions between barbarian, Jew and Gentile, Greek or Jew, Scythian, slave, free, male, female, whatever— the point is that nobody has an advantage in God's kingdom just because they're a man or because they're a woman. And nobody has an advantage in the kingdom of God because they're Gentile or because they're Jew. Nobody has anything to boast about if they're a master or if they are a slave. Now, it's clear if you follow the teachings of Scripture, those things aren't obliterated. I mean, God's law gives clear uh, advice and guidance to, uh, to a master regarding his slave And to a husband regarding his wife and a wife regarding her husband and children and their parents. So the distinctions aren't obliterated, but the point is at the foot of the cross, there's no second-class Christian. Uh, That's what Paul is saying. He's rebuking, in this case, the Galatians I'm referring to in Galatians 3 because they're wanting to make these differences permanent, which was a common thing in Roman society. But in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as this kind of second-class person based on what their last name is.
1: And when you think about people who will profess their faith, but when the time comes, don't confess it in terms of living it out. I don't think too many people, Charles, understand that they're taking God's name in vain. And although he doesn't lay out exactly how he won't hold people guiltless who take his name in vain, he promises that aside from the bad stuff happening around them, they will receive the consequences of professing faith, but not living it out. So when I made reference earlier to saying amen to God, that includes when God's word doesn't necessarily come down in your favor. So I may not like that at all times, that certain things are under the jurisdiction of my husband, and I have to submit to that, I may not like it, but I don't see any place in Scripture where Jesus tells us, where the Word of God tells us, that we're supposed to like it. Who cares if I like it or not? The question is, does God's Word say it? And that's why the label, Christian Reconstruction, which is oftentimes used as a slur and enough to terminate people's thinking, is we are going to reconstruct Our society based on God's word. And the reason the word reconstruction is used rather than construction is because there's an acknowledgement that it was once constructed on God's word. So we don't have the same problem or the same issue that the early church had. They were constructing it. That's how we got Christendom. It's our job to reconstruct it on the foundations of God's word and its application.
0: I think your reference to um, taking uh, the Lord's name in vain is a good one, and of course that's the third commandment that uh, prohibits our taking God's name in vain, and I like the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism addresses that issue, especially where it asks that question about what's forbidden in that commandment. Uh, It tells us that it, it forbids all profaning, abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. Well, that's everything. <laughs> you know. So everything is created by God, and it is meant to glorify him. And so anything that we are doing uh, that is not meant to serve that purpose can, in some measure, uh, be a profaning of his name. And I think, again, that as we move through time and the course of our lives, we will reap the consequences. They may be severe. They may not be of living a life that is not oriented toward respecting the boundaries that God has set in terms of uh, family, in terms of nations, in terms of everything that we do. And so in terms of Christian nationalism, I would just say my take on it is that if if a country is completely dedicated to the absolute authority of the divine word of God and it seeks to order itself along those lines, then it will boast Most of all, in the fact that it honors that truth, Uh, not in particular ethnic group or language or anything such as that. And I realize that people who are interested in this topic, they have a lot to say about it, and there are many strands to this discussion. But the bottom line is really very quite simple. Regardless of where you live or who you are, what is the source of divine authority in your life? And to, to whom are you serving? What are you serving?
1: And let me just close this discussion with, it's more than just how we act. It's the attitudes behind what we do or what we say. So I'm really talking about how you think in your head. It is very threatening to those who challenge God to have opponents who are willing to fight even if they don't see the victory in their own lifetime. And if there's anything that's true, as you read the scriptures, it's the victory in time and eternity of the kingdom of God. And there is a shift taking place from, this is terrible, we don't belong here, please rescue us, to, no, this is not right, this is not what the word of God says, and we'll stand on it. So when you have a force that is willing to persevere despite potentially negative consequences to themselves personally or familiarly, that's a threat. And so one of the best ways to combat that, if you're scared of these people gaining ground, is to divide them to propagandize, to associate them. Oh, this person thinks this, but you know, one time he rode a subway with this person and I think they were talking and they must be friends or whatever you do to dismiss someone. And any of us who have been in the public front know that it's very easy to have people say bad things about you and you might never know. And you might run into someone and they have an opinion Based on something they heard. Now you mentioned, um, back in seminary, you had a situation where somebody said something negative about Christian reconstructionists or theonomists. I had a woman once ask me, so I hear you, 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 you know, get into this rush, do anything in theonomy. So is it true you still sacrifice animals? (laughs) You know, and I looked at her and I, I said, well, before I answer your question, why would you have me in your house if you thought, as a professing Christian, I really sacrificed animals? And she says, well, 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 I, I, I didn't really mean that. I said, yes, yeah, so you don't know what you're talking about. We'll talk about this when you know what you're talking about. So I think if we promote a victory that the Bible clearly states and are ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us, one of two things will happen. People who realize we're prepared will turn around and go, I'm not spending time with this person because I don't have answers, or we might just start knocking away at these people's presuppositions, and now we have people who want answers as opposed to just want to fight.
0: I totally agree. So my final take is that I, I think that people who have an interest in these sort of topics, number one, Let's be very wary of labels and what they mean. Understand that where did this label come from? Who's created it? Is it meant to be divisive because somebody has an agenda that would be? Uh, it would be helpful to their agenda to have uh, people who basically have a lot in common to be at odds with each other. Uh, but then also in terms of nations and states and families, I think the basic question is: What is the foundation of your law? What do you hear as the divine voice of authority on how your nation, your family, your state, your community is governed? And if it is anything other than God's law as summarized in the Ten Commandments, then it's something less than it should be.
1: I would say that in general, having a foundation in biblical law will help you understand ahead of time when a situation or an issue comes up that you're already prepared because you already understand what God's Word says. Yes. Listeners, thanks for joining us. As usual, you can send any comments or questions to out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I just want to say those people who regularly write in and make suggestions and thank us for this podcast, your communication is very welcome.
0: It is uh, indeed, yes.
1: Until next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.